Last week we finished Zechariah 8, so tonight we're going on to 9. The last part of the book is a couple of different prophecies. Let me just start and then we'll unpack this as we go. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath too, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart, a heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. The mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God, that shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. When I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. The reason I wanted to get that in a wad is because there's a bunch of stuff going on. First off, one of the things that you should notice if you know your geography is the list of cities starts up on the northern part of what is today Syria and then comes down and goes down the coast of Israel. The thing in history that matches this is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. To remind you of your history, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre. Tyre, as you know, is an island city, and because it's an island, it's very hard to conquer. Nebuchadnezzar was not able to do it. It was only conquered under Alexander because what Alexander did is he filled in the sea between the shore and the island, built a causeway, and he was able to conquer Tyre. Alexander, of course, being Macedonian or Greek, came down from the north, takes the north part, takes Tyre and so forth, and then comes down through the pass at Megiddo and down the coast. So all the cities in Israel, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and so forth, are Philistine cities which are on the coastal plain on the south of Israel. You will notice that they do not take Jerusalem. And the reason for that, I'm going to now go over to Josephus, his Antiquities. I am in Antiquities of the Jews, book 11, chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Now he, in this case, is the high priest in Jerusalem. So when he understood this, which is to say he gets a vision and a dream that says Alexander is not going to bother you. You don't need to be afraid. That's the vision that the high priest has had from God. Is Everything's going to be okay. You don't need to worry. I'll watch out for you. So when he understood that he was not far from the city, he, in this case, is Alexander. So when the high priest understood that Alexander was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable, 
and the manner of it different from that of other nations. What he did is he got together the priests and the prominent cities of Jerusalem and they all marched out to meet Alexander. And Alexander says, what? Because everybody else comes inside their walls, buttons everything up and tries to withstand a siege. And here in Jerusalem, they throw open the gates and all the prominent people led by the high priest march out to meet him. So that, to begin with, is weird from Alexander's point of view. So the procession was venerable and the manner of it different from that of other nations. It reached to a place called Safa, which name translated into Greek signifies a prospect. For you have thence a prospect both of Jerusalem and of the temple which is to say you can see both Jerusalem and the temple. And when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him, Alexander, thought that they should have liberty to plunder the city and torment the high priest of death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them, the very reverse of it happened. In other words, he's got people that he's conquered and are part of his retinue, and they're thinking, cool, we're going to be able to plunder the place. And what Josephus says is the very opposite thing happened. For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed with fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate on which the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. So Alexander breaks out of his crowd sort of like an old western movie you know where the lorn horseman rides up to the indians and they parlay kind of a thing so alexander breaks out of his crowd and walks by himself to the procession that is coming from jerusalem and he bows down before the high priest from everybody's perspective this is terminally weird the jews did all together with one voice salute alexander and encompass him about, which is to say, they all gathered around him. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done, and supposed him disorder in his mind. Here you've marched into a hostile country, you've just taken over the cities of the plain, you're marching toward Jerusalem, they come out to you, you leave your army, walk up, meet them all, and everybody thinks, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? I mean, who conquers the city this way, right? However, Parmenio alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews. In other words, when Alexander conquered somebody, they would bow down to him. So what's going on that you walk up to this guy bow down to him. Alexander now, to whom he replied, I did not adore him, but that God who hath honored him with that high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was in Dios in Macedonia, who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army and give me dominion over the Persians. So Alexander has had a vision before he even started going into Asia, and what he saw in his vision was the high priest in his high priest garments, and in the vision or dream, 
he was told, go for it, you're going to be okay. So when he actually sees the high priest coming out of Jerusalem, it's like deja vu all over again, to quote Casey Stingle. So, would give me dominion over the Persians. Whence it is, but having seen no other in that habit, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians and all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. So having had his vision, set out on conquest, when he finally shows up in front of Jerusalem, all of a sudden the dream comes to life and strengthens his resolve. And when he said this to Parmenio, and had given the high priest his right hand, the priest ran along by him, and he came to the city. And when we went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction, and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. Now here we go. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person indeed, and he was then glad. He dismissed the multitude for the present, and by the next day he called them to him and bade them ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute in the event of war. So, goes to the temple, sacrifices according to what the high priest instructs him to do, and then the high priest drags out the book of Daniel. And of course, you've all read your Daniel, and you know that Daniel has visions, and you have the goat that goes and takes out the bear and so forth, and it's interpreted in the book of Daniel that the goat is the Greeks and the bear is the Persians. Alexander's ambition is to break the Persian Empire, so he regards, ha, this is a prophecy of me. And so then, very friendly terms with the high priest in Jerusalem, asks, what can I do for you? And the high priest says, really, we just want to be left alone, want to practice our own religion, and when you conquer all this place, we do not want to be put under tribute. Alexander says, good deal, done. So this first chunk of Zechariah, absent what I just read about Alexander, is talking about that incident. What you have here is you list these places that get taken out. As I said earlier, it starts up in the north, north part of Syria, because the Greeks are coming across the Aegean Sea, down through Asia Minor, and coming down the coast. So they'll take out Syria, they'll take out Tyre, and they'll come down and take the cities of the plain. And then when they turn to take out Jerusalem, then this incident happens that I just read about. Now, there's a couple of things in here. Down to verse 7. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. What he's talking about there is idol worship and pagan sacrifice. So take away blood from its mouth and uh, abomination from its teeth is what he's going to do is he's going to put an end to pagan worship as part of that process. That's, That's what that means. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. You all know your history. The Jebusites were the tribe 
that lived in Jerusalem before David conquered it. They were one of the ites that were in the land that Moses told Joshua to destroy. They didn't destroy them, and so the Jebusites just sort of got absorbed. Although Brian was saying he was in Jerusalem and he was talking to somebody, and the guy said, no, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Jebusite. So, at least in this guy's mind, the Jebusites still exist as an identifiable heritage. Don't know if that's true or not. There's an anecdote that Brian said, and that's, that's really all I know about it. But the idea is that Israel would absorb those Philistines that escaped the destruction under Alexander. Now we're going to shift gears. The business with Alexander is something like 300 and some odd BC. You remember again, Alexander the Great was a young man, died in his 30s, having conquered everything from Macedonia clear over to India. And when he died, he left his whole shooting match to his four generals. There were four generals under Alexander, and the two that make the Bible are Seleucus and Ptolemy. Seleucus gets the area of what is now Syria east to India. Ptolemy gets Egypt, and then you've got, I don't remember the other two, they don't figure in the Bible, but they get Macedonia and Greece, respectively. And the ones that are talked about in the book of Daniel are Ptolemy and Seleucus. The business with Alexander is about three and a half hundred years before Christ. Now we're going to go forward in verse 9 to the time of Christ. So what we've got is a time gap here between verse 8 and verse 9. Now verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Obviously, that particular scenario was played out literally by Yeshua. I don't think anybody here has a problem with that. And we've had a long conversation about donkeys, horses, and mules. The idea that somebody riding on a donkey comes in peace, somebody riding on a horse comes with a sword, typically. So the idea that he's riding on a donkey would have been understood by everyone that he's coming in peace. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Notice that we have shifted now to Ephraim. One of the things that started this study off, at least in my mind, is this book that I was reading, Messiah ben Joseph. So what you have is Joseph themes in this. He shall rule from sea to sea. That's the prophecy of Joseph in Deuteronomy. And similarly, Ephraim, of course, is Joseph. And 
the idea that God will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations, his rule from sea to sea, well, that didn't happen. He hasn't done that yet. And from the river, of course, the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Who got thrown into a waterless pit by his brothers? Joseph. So notice that the image here is all Josephite. Verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I will declare that I will restore to you double. I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. Reading this last night, something just struck me. Never seen it before. May not be sound, but it struck me right between the eyes. One of the things going back to Abraham. Remember Abraham was told that his descendants would be a blessing to all the earth. Israel was told at the Exodus, you're going to be a nation of priests. And the idea of priest is that you're supposed to teach holy and common, clean and unclean, and about the Torah. And when we had the unfortunate incident with the golden calf, instead of the whole nation being a nation of priests, it got reduced to the Levites. But the original goal here was that the nation Israel was going to be God's vehicle for spreading the word about him throughout the world. So, if you look at it that way, Ephraim becoming his arrow, what that says to me is the exile of Ephraim was shooting an arrow out into the world with the idea of carrying the concept of God, monotheism, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, carrying that out to the nations. Judah, being his bow, what you see there, I personally believe, is Judah is going to maintain coherent worship of God and a coherent people of God, even though the Ephraimites get absorbed, if you will, into the world. So using our arrow metaphor, he fires his arrow out into the world and it goes into the world and doesn't get pulled out. Judah is the one that maintains the temple. They get sent into exile, but they come back and rebuild the temple. Judah is the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. So in a sense, Judah becomes the bow, if you will, that shoots the arrow of Ephraim out. Did I say that so it made sense? I have no idea whether that's true or not. It just kind of struck me as I was reading that, that image, if you will. The other part of that image that is important here is if you remember the prophecy that Moses and Jacob spoke over Joseph. It talks about arrows being shot at him and so forth. And the metaphor there is Josephite. But as I say, the idea that Joseph becomes an arrow who is fired by God into the world, Judah, because it remains as an identifiable unit, if you will, where Ephraim doesn't, is the bow from which it's shot. So verse 13 again. 
For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. That talks about the Maccabees. They will throw off the Greeks under Antiochus. 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. What are the corners of the altar drenched with? Blood. So this is again a metaphor for conquest. Verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Obviously talking about prosperity. (laughs) They don't know that the prophet is talking about anything else. The idea here is... and. Ken was talking about this earlier, that there are going to be several returns. You have that return of part of Judah from Babylon. And again, I've done this before, but very quickly. Judah was every bit as corrupt as Ephraim was. Yet Ephraim got scattered and to this day is not identifiable, even though the Jews have got a project to go out and find the children of Manasseh. And they find pockets of people all over the world who do Jewish stuff and have no idea why. They found them in India. They found tribe in the Khyber Pass. They do kosher slaughter. They do everything, but they have no idea why. They're Muslims. The point is, they've been scattered. Back up a minute. If you remember your early Isaiah, he is yelling at Jerusalem and Judah. And he is saying, you guys are just as corrupt as Ephraim is. Ephraim gets sent into exile. Judah also gets sent into exile about 120 some odd years later, but they stay together as a people. So the Jews, Judah, remains an identifiable people to this day. It is my belief that the reason for that is the Messiah. So you had Judah get sent into exile to Babylon. Seventy years later, they start coming back. And the reason that they came back is because they had to get the Messiah born. So they go into exile to Babylon, come back, rebuild the temple, get everything sorted out. The Messiah gets born, and then 40 years later, they're back in exile. The return from Babylon, at least as I understand it, is simply a necessity for the birth of the Messiah. He has to be born from the tribe of David. He has to be born to the Jews. You don't have any Jews that you can find anymore. It can't happen. So, all the way down to chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, 
and diviners see lies. They see false dreams. They give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Obviously, what he's talking about is idol worship. And this idea of a shepherd, one of the things that is fairly consistent throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is a shepherd is symbolic of a king. His job is to shepherd the people. And when the people go into idol worship and listen to household gods who utter nonsense and listen to diviners who see lies, they wander around without leadership or guidance because their shepherds have failed them. Verse 3, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Notice we have switched from Ephraim to Judah now. Because all the imagery before, riding on a colt and so forth, that was all Ephraim or Joseph imagery. Now we switch back to Judah imagery. The Lord obviously is angry with the shepherds. That's pretty clear from the book of Malachi, where he goes after the leadership. And in fact, it goes throughout all the prophets. The house of Judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. What I am suggesting that is talking about is the second coming of Christ, because Christ is born of the house of Judah, and he comes back on a steed. So I'm suggesting that that's talking about the second coming. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets, They shall fight because the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. And the riders on horses in this case would be the enemy. The cornerstone image is image of Yeshua. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone you anchor the building with, a tent peg you anchor the tent with. So the idea there is he is fixed, he is anchored, he is stable, and he is able to anchor the structure. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Okay, now we're back again to this mixed imagery. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim will become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So the idea there is Israel as an entire nation coming back together. This is New Covenant territory. Pick your version of the New Covenant, the one that most Christians know is, of course, in Jeremiah 31. And the idea there is, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the new covenant is with both of the houses of Israel. The idea here is that Israel and Judah will be reunited, and then they will just be Israel. So if you go to Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the idea there is it starts off Israel and Judah, two separate houses. He's going to bring them back together and it will just be Israel. There will no longer be two separate houses. That's what's being talked about here in Zechariah. So verse 6, back in Zechariah 10. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim will become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And again, you remember that the prophecy of Joseph in Deuteronomy 33. Blessed by the Lord be his land. May the choice gift of heaven above and the deep that crouches beneath the choicest fruits of the sun, the rich yield of the months, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth in its fullness, the favor of him who dwells in the bush, may these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. Notice, prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Manasseh. So the idea here is this Joseph will be a conqueror. Back here in Zechariah, it says in verse 7, Ephraim will become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So the idea is Ephraim when they come back together, will be the warrior that is predicted in Deuteronomy 33. Back up one second. Back in verse 6. I will bring them back, the house of Joseph, because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. So the idea that God for a time rejected Ephraim, you'll see that in lots of biblical circles, where they will say Ephraim was divorced. Do that as you please. But the point is, they're going to be brought back as if they had never been rejected. So verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, gather them from Assyria. I will gather them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Gilead and Lebanon are north Israel. That is where the house of Israel was originally. So we are talking about the house of Israel, not the house of Judah here. Verse 11. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up the pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord. They shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. This is, I believe, millennial kingdom stuff. The beginning of the millennial kingdom where Yeshua comes back, gathers everybody together. He rules them with a rod of iron, if you will. 
Psalm 2. That, I believe, is what we're talking about there. Et ta chambre.